Hey, welcome to the FemPoet Podcast. I'm your host, Kalana Charles. On the podcast, I talk with women who are daring to live unapologetically and willing to take the risks they need in order to live the lives they crave. These women are invested in helping others heal and become, and they aren't afraid to speak truth to power and live their lives with a sense of purpose. So grab your favorite cuppa or do the dishes. You know how we be multitasking when we listen to podcasts. And join us in the conversation. I'm so glad you're here. So on this podcast, we go deep. We have difficult conversations. We speak truth to power. And we aren't afraid to discuss the things that we secretly think. My conversation today with Saskia Barnes is perhaps one of the most difficult conversations I'm having this season. Today, we're talking about race and rage. Now, before we delve in, let me introduce you to Saskia, my guest today. She is a wife, first-time mommy, writer, and entrepreneur. So, Saskia, welcome and thank you for your time. I'm very excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on, the, on your podcast. I think it's very necessary and needed right now. So I'm excited um, to add my voice and to support you on this. Awesome. I appreciate that. So, child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. What are you drinking now? I'm actually trying to get a gallon of water in a day because I'm breastfeeding. I'm going to be breastfeeding for a while. Um, so I'm really trying to up my water intake. Um, previously to becoming a mommy, I'm a vodka um, type of lady. Um, <laughs> previously, um, I, I don't know. I might have some Russian somewhere um, down the line, but I really, really like vodka. But right now, I'm on trying to drink a gallon of water a day to make sure my supply is up. Good on you. Well, this conversation is going to be loaded. Um, it actually calls for a rum and coke, but I'm just going to have coffee so that I can keep a steady head. Just going to have some coffee. So I think it's fair to say that right now, the eyes of the world are on the U.S. What are your thoughts on what's happening in the U.S. at this time, um, particularly in light of the death or rather the murder of George Floyd? I think what the U.S. Um, is facing right now, um, I think if you're human, you would sympathize um, with African-Americans and living in a society that constantly, um, overtly um, tries to essentially pull you down or try to stop you from achieving basic human rights. So I definitely sympathize um, with what's happening. I do believe um, unequivocally that, you know, unless Black Lives Matter, you know, that's just the conversation that I'm willing to have. I'm not willing to have a normal lives conversation. I'm not that type of person. Um, I need Black Lives to Matter a whole lot more in the United States and globally because what's affecting the United States, the reason I think that it's resonating around the world is that people, a lot of people identify um, with it. I think a lot of us in the region, in former colonies, um, should identify uh, with what's going on. Um, but I think it's just really, really tragic. And I think it's really, it's really sad that so many persons have had to die in a manner in which um, they're dying or being murdered um, for it to get to this, um, for it to get to this point. So I definitely sympathize with what's going on. I'm being educated 
um, during this time. Um, but also what's very important for me is to also um, advocate and to have those difficult conversations with um, friends, family, white counterparts, so that we can actually get over um, this situation. A lot has to happen. Um, a lot is really dependent on white people um, really understanding racism and learning to become anti-racist. Um, so all of that, it's a lot of work that has to be done, but I think we all have to be really committed to getting the work done. Yeah, definitely. You know, looking on it, you can see the obvious. You can see the, it, it's almost like anarchy. Mm -hmm. And then there's the looting, the violence. And it feels like we're living a chapter in history. The time we are living in, your child and, you know, the future generations, they're going to read about it. I think definitely. Since the lockdown. Yeah. Since this lockdown, we've learned so much. And I think it has really shown up a lot of the racial disparities in the U.S., we learned about the death of Brianna Taylor, which is, I mean, this is just, I mean, every death is sad, but I mean, this is just terrible. You know, you're in your bed sleeping and, oh, I don't even want to unload on that one. And then there was this situation with Ahmad Aubrey mm -hmm. and now George Floyd. And one thing that connects all of these is that they're all horrible. They're all unwarranted. And they've all helped to stir up this this rage that we're seeing in the black community. It's been very interesting to look on and see what's happening in the UK, the demonstrations, the toppling of um, statues. This morning I was looking on and I saw the PM in the UK. He was pretty much saying that he's against the toppling of statues and he's against the dismantling of the system. And if you don't like it, then your option is to vote differently. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I kind of recoiled when he said that. And I was like, well, look at him. He is, he's straight with it. He's real with it. And I can respect him for that. So I hope that they take note mm -hmm. and that when they go back to the polls, they reflect the truth that they want. They reflect the experience that they want. It's quite an interesting time we're living in. You're seeing people, even in Syria, I was seeing um, on Instagram that even in Syria, there's a faction there, you know, standing with what's going on in the States. You see them with a the Black Lives flag and they're like Black Lives Matter. And in very far-flung corners of the world, it's it's just been incredible to see this all unfold. Like I said, I think if you are human and you're not really moved by uh, what's happening, um, for me, it's just hard for you, for persons not to be moved to real action and to question why uh, it's only happening to a certain uh, set of individuals. Um, and I think yeah. what's happening right now is just a manifestation of, you know, hundreds of years of a form of oppression. Um, D.H. Hughley um, once said something that I found hilarious, um, but at the same time, you had to kind of stop and look at he said that he would like to be the black person that's in the imagination of white people. That black person that has a ridiculous amount of strength can kill you in one swat or whatever. But I think white people and whiteness have this idea of who black people are um, that yes. forces them to react in a way. You hear the police officers always say that they feel that their lives um, are being threatened. Even though someone is running away from you, you feel the need to shoot them how many times in the back because you feel like your life is being threatened. 
you're coming to a car to ask for registration or ID, guy's hands are visible. He reaches over for what you've asked him to give you um, and you kill him um, because somehow you feel as though he is going to have this supernatural strength and do something to you and endanger um, your life. So I think the conversation really has to start or the conversation has already started. It's really, really out there in terms of um, really trying to break down who we think Black people are, um, what Black people are capable of doing, and why can't white people see Black people just as they see themselves? You know, I was saying to a friend of mine a few weeks ago, I think when emancipation came along, people thought that they would be free. And although the physical chains no longer exist, within the mindsets of many black or rather white people, we are still subjected to them. It's just a different type of, of slavery. So it's not like you're bound or you're chained, but there's a notion that your blackness now is is almost the cause of your bondage. You're not seen as a full person because of the color of your skin. You're seen as a threat. I'm always, I always wonder what it is they think that we want to do to them. When you look at it, most you will see a grown man, as we've seen in the case of um, George Floyd. I mean, when I saw that video, and it took me a while to look at that video, it really broke me to see this tall, strapping man crying for his mother. I mean, if that doesn't touch you, I don't know what else will, but it's like, I'm still trying to figure out as a race, what, what is, it seems like our biggest offense is the color of our skin. And even though we may be free, we are still not freed from the suspicion and the mindsets. So in that sense, slavery has still won because many, many years later, hundreds of years later, there's still the mindset that has been attached that black people are a particular way. And regardless of our accomplishments and our achievements, that there's a chain that still ties some people's mindset to a particular outlook on a certain group of people. So it's, 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 it's what I feel. I feel like we're at a tipping point right mm-hmm. now. And uh, I think that his death, and I think even what happened to Brianna Taylor and Aubrey, it, it all has so, sort of coalesced into this moment where I feel like people are not ready to sit and take a look and have an honest conversation about race and race relations within the U.S. I- would you say that it's a tipping point? It's definitely a tipping point. I think the greater conversation, I think that, you know, it's a conversation that I'm trying to engage in. It's a conversation that I'm trying to be educated on is, you know, what is it? What, what is race exactly? Um, what does it mean to be white? And what does it mean to um, be black? And we live in a white society because the norms, the quote unquote norms that we have, what is proper is according to white values and how, you know, mm. white persons feel. And those values essentially were created to maintain dominance over a group of individuals. 
And whenever you find people are trying to challenge that, i.e. live their normal lives like you, a white person, you would see that white people are, um, uh, they have, the word isn't concerned. Um, they want to protect their own space. They want to protect the privilege mm-hmm. that it is being, that, you know, means being white. So to me, that's kind of, that's racism. That's what it means to be white. You kind of have to, and I'm not saying white people are, you know, I'm not calling all white people racist or anything like that, but I think that we have to understand what whiteness means. Um, and as a black person, that whiteness means um, a dominance over my existence. You fall out of line of what is good and proper according to whiteness. You know, you're seen as a threat. Um, there's this hostile um, response to it. And so for me, things like electing a Donald Trump um, that was the response to electing a Barack Obama. Um, that white space yeah. was being endangered, um, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So you now have to do something as powerful as electing a Donald Trump. Um, one of my favorite writers, Tennessee quotes, quotes. Oh my, he's uh, awesome. He awesome. breaks it down for you very simply. He talks about Donald Trump is the first white president of the United States and how for the first time in the history of the United States, they actually elected a man who embodied what it means to be white. He embodied whiteness. He was the manifestation of white privilege, literally. Um, and that's what uh, people wanted. So I think we really need to have a greater conversation about what is whiteness and how whiteness really affects us. Um, and I find that in the Caribbean, we think because we don't have a police officer that's necessarily having their knee on the necks, um, that we are not having the same conversation. Their lives are different from our lives and so on. Um, you know, there's a constant conversation about, you know, African Americans. Um, need to pull themselves up. Those are things that we as Caribbean people um, often say or try to compare our experiences. And it's really, um, in many ways, it's the same experience, but in um, so many mo- more ways, it's not the same um, experience. And I think that we need to be a little bit more sympathetic um, to the plight of African-Americans in the region. And we need to start looking at our societies and how whiteness affects our um, societies. I live in um, what is now politely called an overseas territory, which is essentially a colony. Um, and a governor is sent to my um, island to essentially oversee the governance um, of what's going on um, in our territory. So, you know, if we're supposed to be advancing, we're supposed to be so different. Um, those types of things we have to start really kind of looking at and questioning. Um, is this really, um, freedom? Is this really right. um, what we're supposed to be having in the age of, you know, it's 2020. Are we really supposed to be yep. um, having these types of, um, constructs in our society, the way all government run, um, even, how we receive aid, how we're allowed to spend money. Um, those are things I think that we really have to start questioning the order of society who has said that that is the way it should go. And are we still willing to buy into that um, social construct? So those I think are difficult conversations yeah. that we really need to start having in the region. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned something earlier about uh, the definition of 
what is whiteness, what is blackness. I think what is interesting to note, I was actually looking at this last night on the news, that what's been making news is that a recent grad student, well, a recent graduate from Drake University, she's gotten Merriman Webster's Dictionary to update the definition on racism. Mm. So in light of everything that's been happening, she sent out an email to them asking them to include a mention of systemic oppression within their definition of racism. Because for many years, apparently the definition for racism was pretty much this mindset of superiority mm-hmm. over another person or a group of person based on uh, their skin tone. And that's that, that in itself is very deep because you have a lot of people who exercise racist notions, they benefit from racist systems, but they do not feel that they're racist because they do not see themselves as being better than a person or a group of people. So I was very proud to see that, you know, not just her willingness to challenge them, but their willingness to accept. So I feel like we really are in a tipping point because people are now willing to at least entertain certain conversations that we've been asking them to consider for quite a long time. So so I think the tide the tide is turning. The tide is definitely turning. The tide is turning. Um and you know we talk about race and rage. And I think perhaps I would be a quote unquote angry black woman. Um but I'm really not interested in having conversations, um, particular conversations. I'm interested in having conversations with um, Black people or people um, in the diaspora about, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to heal from um, this trauma? Um, and how are we going to move forward? I was in this mastermind, um, which was led by a very um, famous British um, lady, and they sent out the template email, but, you know, they see you and they hear you and they're going to be listening now. And so I engaged and I was, you know, essentially saying that, you know, I don't really think that, you know, this is genuine um, because <laughs> how could you all of a sudden just like that um, kind of, you know, realize that, you know, this is wrong and it's wrong in that community now because they're getting the backlash and their financial um, repercussions from the mm-hmm. behavior. So now all of a sudden everyone sees you and they hear you. They didn't see you in the conversations that they were having um, before. They didn't see the need to actually reflect the diversity that is the world um, in who they identify as experts. And I was trying to share with them that just, you know, you not being able to see that a person of color is equally um, an expert on a particular topic, and perhaps you should give that person opportunity. Um, that in itself kind of shows you how entrenched your idea of what should be, who should be on the cover of something, who should be engaging in intellectual conversation. That gives you an idea of how you feel, you know, the, the ingrained prejudices that you might have. And that you are perpetuating. Um, at the end of the conversation, um, they kind of, you know, invited a bunch of us to be a part of some group to help them diversify and so on. And my response was absolutely not. Um, you're the, you're the token uh, black. <laughs> well, there are a bunch of token blacks, you know, in these, um, thing because now they're trying to look, uh, much more diversity. 
diversified? My response was, you know, just go Google it, go read, go do some research, go have some quiet time, go really think um, about what's going on and how your actions um, or how your willful ignorance is really affecting the lives of um, individuals. So for me, I think it's important for us to have the conversation, but I'm much more interested in having a conversation um, with um, Black people, um, particularly in the region, about, you know, looking at what um, racism means to us in the region and how we have been uh, affected um, by it and what we need to do to move forward, um, to move forward. But we definitely have to kind of have a really big family discussion about, you know, who we are. Yeah. Um, we have to rebuild ourselves um, in so many ways. Um, so, you know, those are, those are, I think, more important conversations for me um, to have versus engaging, um, you know, someone who obviously has the resources to get the help that they really need and just plain old lazy. Yeah. Well, you know, when it comes to this whole idea of the, 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 the angry black woman, it's one of the tropes that I feel people throw out there to subjugate women who have been vocal or who are unapologetic on certain issues. I would definitely fit the label of angry black woman. I have a big mouth. Not that I'm loud, but I speak truth whenever I feel it needs to, to be spoken. And I'm not afraid to to go certain places and have certain conversations. And uh, there's this general feeling that what I really don't like about the label is that there's a measure of erasure mm -hmm. attached to it. So it's, it's almost used to shut you down and shut you up. It's like to erase you to the point where you're just seen as another angry black woman. But, but I think that that's the point of, it, you know, though. when, because, to maintain right. racism, I have to show some sort of dominance over you or I have to um, make sure what you're saying is not valid. And in order to do that, I have to kind of um, put some sort of negative label um, on you to tell everyone, don't look, listen to her. Don't look at what um, she's doing. It's not valid. Let's go back to the norm. Let's go exactly. back to doing what we're doing. So it's willful. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. We looked at another man kneel on a man's neck with his hands in his pocket, very nonchalant, very indifferent. Had this man beg for breath and life, cry out his to his mother, mother, his dead mother, Jesus. And uh, all of a sudden, it gets people's attention. And this is why Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. kneeled so that people like him wouldn't have to kneel on people like Floyd's neck. So everyone's kneeling now because it's politically correct to kneel at this time. And also it makes good financial sense for some to kneel. So here's a word of advice for people in the community. Be mindful of everyone who is suddenly an ally or an advocate. Because there may be some motive behind it. And oftentimes it's financial. Mm -hmm. People don't like to be hit where it hurts. And that's often the pocket. I'm, I'm noticing so many voices that have been quiet on this conversation. Is, is all of a sudden very vocal. And I mean, yes, perhaps now is the time. 
but it makes you wonder what is the true intent? Why did a man kneeling on someone, crushing the life out of his body, become that thing for you? Years ago, when Philando Castile was murdered in his car with his daughter and girlfriend looking on, I mean, wasn't that a tipping point? Wasn't so many things were tipping points. So now we are here. We're not angry. We're glad that you've joined us and taken your seat at the table to have this conversation. We're not going to dwell too much on what you didn't do because we're glad you're here now. But we do have some anger. We do have some rage because it didn't have to come to that. It didn't have to come to that. It really didn't have to come to that. I understand why so many people are angry. To me, it's different now. I think... You know, Black Americans were angry during the civil rights movement, before that and after that. But I want to feel that somehow, because of the coronavirus, there are a few distractions. You know, people are sheltered in place, people are locked down, people are evaluating a lot of things. And perhaps it is the catalyst to force people to look at what's happening. I think that... So let's... I, I think that's well, what was very um, symbolic of what happened, um, the murder of uh, George Floyd, um, and why it's really, why it's really energizing the entire um, world to rally um, behind a systematic, um, a system of oppression, is that that police officer really represented um, the quote-unquote, the system, <laughs> um, really keeping yeah. people down. Um, keeping black people down, keeping vulnerable communities um, down. And no matter how much you're trying to get ahead, as we heard that Floyd moved um, from Houston to kind of try to move on with his life, to do things differently and so on. So it seems though, no matter what you do, no matter how you try uh, to get ahead, that police officer, the quote unquote, that system keeps on essentially, Reverend Al said it as well, they just have your get your knee off our yeah. necks. <laughs> so I think that that's kind of why it really resonated with a lot of people um, around the world um, who who are feeling um, some sort of oppression. Who really are you know we're being forced to ask why is it this way and do I really have to accept what's going on um, to me and to my community? And the response is an overwhelming no. I'm no longer going to accept it. Yeah. You know, as an Afro-Caribbean woman, I've always wondered why it seems that of all the countries with a history of slavery, the U.S. seems to struggle with this deep systemic racial divide. What are your thoughts on that? Um, like I said, a lot of things I am still really trying to do some work myself in terms of really trying to understand a lot of things and why I think a particular way also. Um, but I think economics is the big story of the United States. Um, you know, the American dream, yeah. um, being all that you can be and so forth. And a lot of us from the region, we moved to the United States for that American dream for, you know, a way ahead. And when you get there, you also kind of realize that, um, the game is kind of rigged for particular individuals to, to do well, <laughs> and for me, in particular, a person of color, to play my role in ensuring that they 
um, do well. So for me, economics is really, economics in the United States has been a big thing. And I think economics is one of the reasons that um, uh, how the United States is built and how it's set up um, poses a challenge um, to those individuals who have to be oppressed in order um, for those to succeed. Um, so say, for instance, like having like a national health care system and so on, they choose to have much more of a capitalist system where you have to kind of pay to stay alive, essentially, versus valuing people's lives and valuing good health that, you know, as a community, um, we decide as a community that we value good health. And therefore, this is something that we should all pay into and we should all gain the benefits um, of. Uh, again, going back to Tennessee quotes, he um, talked, uh, he has a lot of good um, essays uh, for when he was at the Atlantic talking about, you know, the struggles of African-Americans. But one particular thing that I remember reading that I didn't know anything about was, you know, the migration of African-Americans from the South to the North and trying to gain opportunity in the North. So in the South, you were actively lynched, you were actively hounded, your farms were burnt down, your farms were taken away from you. And people would move to the North, trying to escape all of that and trying to um, really have a, a new life and really have life, period. Um, have a good home, take care right. of their families, not want much, but just have life. Um, and so they would move yeah. to the North. And when they went to the North, they found that Though they weren't being actively um, lynched, um, there were different forms of um, lynchings, essentially. And one of the things that he explored was, say, for instance, housing. Um, the greatest, the easiest, or um, the most meaningful path to wealth is um, owning property and passing that property on um, for generations. So he explored um, how they would have like a contract system. So essentially... Um, as an African-American family, you can save all of your money um, to kind of have a house. The banks won't really lend any money to you um, because, you know, mm -hmm. you're black. They didn't feel so you keep a good job or whatever to pay back um, this money. And some people just didn't want to see you um, own your own home. So they'd have this contract system mm -hmm. where essentially someone is holding your deed, um, holding your loan for you, and you're paying essentially almost like rent. And the intention is that you would rent to own. Um, but these same people would come up with arbitrary rules. If you miss a payment by a day, if you miss a payment by a month or whatever, they can literally take your entire house away from you. And there's no justice. There's no mm -hmm. one that say no, that that is wrong. That's just what it is. So when you see that that happens over and over again, um, for us in the region who like to say that, you know, African-Americans need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, um, you can see, or I um, was educated on how, you know, that becomes really, really difficult where you are running from a particular thing. You think that you're in a better position and, you know, some arbitrary white guy can decide that, you know, you don't deserve this. This is too good um, for you. So I'm going to take this away from you. And there's no law, there's no justice to say that, no, that person can't um, do that. If you have families that are doing well, African-American families that are doing well, um, we know about Seneca Village, we know about Rosewood, um, Black Wall Street, and so on. They can, they at that point in time, they could have actively, actively, you know, came and just kind of destroyed all that you built. 
and there would be no recourse uh, for it. And that's not something that happened in the early, uh, that's just happening in the early 20s and what's not. It's happening today yeah. as well. Kaepernick, a perfectly good um, quarterback, loses his entire livelihood simply because he is asking and he has a platform and he's trying to use his platform um, to help individuals. So it's still happening, I think, in different forms. Um, so I think it's, I, I think it's just very important for us in the region, particularly to really try to understand uh, the plight of African Americans and what they have experienced. Cause we're not taught that necessarily here. I went to historically black college. So that in itself really helped me out a lot. But I remember it was my sophomore summer where young lady who's now my best friend, um, essentially, um, you know, read me, uh, cause we were in a program where we were helping at risk young persons. And I was expressing, um, some disdain. I don't know why people don't use this opportunity. They have this, they have that. And she got sick and tired of me and other people, um, from Africa, from the Caribbean, essentially coming to participate in the culture and what was built for African Americans, but also at the same time putting down um, African Americans. And so she almost on the verge right. of tears, like read me and, you know, essentially told me that it might have been easier for me because, you know, I lived in a household with my mother and father and there was not like a system that worked to separate families. So as a young girl, she didn't have that safety. I wasn't raised in an environment where drugs were maliciously placed in my neighborhood. And as a young girl, she had to watch her mother and her grandmother like on drugs, don't have a way to provide food, um, doing um, particular things. So how is she supposed to know that, you know, those things aren't, uh, you know, what quote unquote normal people are supposed to be doing? Her sister had an opportunity to go on to college. And because her sister went on to college, her sister reached back and was just like trying to help her be on a stable path uh, so that she can uh, go to school. And that's how, you know, her family or her generation was able to get out of a particular situation. Um, so I think we really have to do a lot of education um, ourselves in understanding um, the plight of African-Americans because I certainly wasn't taught about it at all um, in school. So um, what we know about African-Americans is essentially what we see on television. Um, and that's a created environment that's, again, um, set up. Well, definitely. It's similar to the similar to the images they mm -hmm. like to show us of Africa. You know, the children hungry, the flies, yeah. the abject poverty. A lot of it is just manufactured to present a sort of view that isn't really speaking to the whole yeah. and it to has the to whole be picture that in order for them to maintain dominance. Yeah. Um in in recent well within the past month I've been speaking to some of my black friends and colleagues across the diaspora since the incident. I think a lot of them in the US feel like we don't identify with their struggle and their plight. And I've had to have some conversations where I too have been schooled already. Because you don't know what you don't know. And um when you get an opportunity to learn, it's always a, a moment for enlightenment. But, you know, I, 
I think there is a feeling that we do not experience racism or racial oppression to the measure that they do. So obviously it's a challenge for us to understand their plight. And of course they are right to some extent because we do not live with systemic oppression or that ever-present sense of foreboding that many of them do. You know, for them, it's daily, it's pervasive, it's traumatic. And people like us who live in the region, here's the thing, we do not have to minimize our blackness to look safe, quote-unquote, look safe or look non-threatening. You know, when, when we move about... We don't do it with a sense of not making others feel unsafe or risk the wrath of a Karen or, mm-hmm. or an Amy. Many of them, they, they live with that sense of, you know, fear and uncertainty. And I imagine it's very difficult for them to escape because a lot of it is rooted in policies and institutions. We in the region, our racial composition is mostly Black. So we are the majority here. And I think our struggle is often Mm -hmm. against class and the politics associated with class system. So, of course, that's not to say that we have not been victims of racism. I can actually remember the first time I experienced racism. I was a teen working in a store over the summer. And this man came in with a very thick German accent looking for footwear. And for the life of me, I could not understand what he was saying. And after a while, he got fed up and he looked at me with his gust and he said, Black Ooh. dummy. <laughs> and he told me to go call the Ooh. big white man. So I think he assumed that the store was owned by whites. Actually, it wasn't. It was, it was owned by Indians. The second time was when I worked for a British company based in the UK, but they had an... Um, an office in Grenada. And as the operations manager at the time, I had to travel to the UK often. And I remember being in a black cab headed back to the flat I was staying at in Mayfair. And when I got to my destination, the cabbie winked at me and he told me that he hoped he would pay me well. So I just smiled. And at the time, I didn't understand what he meant, honestly. I just thought he was a strange little man, you know? So I went into the office the next day and I told them, you know, look at what he said to me. And they all laughed and said that he thought that I was a prostitute. Because you see, at the time, Mayfair was, and I assume it is, it's a very posh and upscale Mm. part of London. And to him, selling my body was the only way Mm. a black girl like me could access rich white spaces like that. So in my almost 40 years, those have been my only two experiences. But I remember them like it was yesterday. And that's one of the benefits of being an Afro-Caribbean woman living in the region. I don't have to live with that pervasive, ever-present sense of discrimination or judgment on a daily basis. And I believe living with and enduring these types of things as our counterparts do in the U.S. and even in places like the U.K., it, it, really, it really demarks the difference between them 
and us in terms of that experience? I think that's that true. Uh, I think the times that I've also experienced um, overt and even microaggressions, um, it leaves you feeling very perplexed and your mind is taken up with how is it that this person can even see me um, in this manner? So imagine I guess that on a just daily basis. Um, I think it's, it's significant trauma. And the thing about it as well is that we also pass that trauma on to the next generation, um, teaching, you know, black boys how they should behave in public because, you know, you don't want to be too alarming um, to some person who might feel threatened um, by your black body. But I think I beg to differ in that we do experience um, a more discreet form of racism in the Caribbean. And I want to go back to what I said earlier about what whiteness means in terms of creating a space or creating a world where whatever what whatever the white mind um, can think about or however the white mind thinks a society should be set up is the way that it should be. And when you dare to go against that and dare to try to create a space of your own liking according to your own customs and according to your own culture, how that is demonized. I'm an immigrant because policymakers and truthfully one of my favorite presidents um, decided that the person um, that my fellow Guyanese nationals elected way back when was not the right person um, to ensure the way that they thought the world should go um, to ensure that that status quo is maintained. And so countries um, in the region, places like Guyana, Grenada, um, were destabilized because of that idea of what a country should be, who should get the benefits um, from the resources um, of that country, and what the quote-unquote natives, the locals, should have. So I think for me, that's how I see we have been really affected um, sort of discreetly um, by racism. So yeah. when you can go through the chain in the Caribbean. You can go through the chain in the Caribbean. Which Caribbean country doesn't say that they were the breadbasket um, of the region? But no, for me, particularly in the Virgin Islands, we have to wait on those ships to come in from Florida to make sure that we are fed. So how is it that, you know, why is it that we can't um, grow our own food? People are going to start blaming it on um, the governments. And then I'm going to ask, why aren't the governments doing um, what they're supposed to um, do? I'm going to have to kind of look at things like um, who they, quote unquote, have to report to, how they have to interface, who um, allows us to borrow money, what are the terms in which we can borrow the money to develop ourselves, um, so those are the types of conversations I think that we really need to be having um, in the region. So we don't face the day-to-day -day, um, police brutality, um, but we definitely face a form of racism that I think, I dare say, can be a whole lot more dangerous in terms of weeding out and trying to get ourselves as Afro-Caribbean um, nationals, get ourselves together to really chart our um, course. Very recently in the Virgin Islands where I live, the governor who is appointed um, by the UK. Um, so like I said, and I'm, I'm not going to apologize for using the term oversee um, the affairs. Um, 
who's not elected. We do have an elected um, legislature. Um, he was late in putting forward a report, a particular report um, to the House of Assembly, which is essentially the people's house where the elected members make decisions and so on. So there is one politician who essentially brought a bill to kind of censure him, to reprimand. It is right. not that he would be going to jail or anything like that. It's simply a public statement um, expressing displeasure. Would you believe that in a house of 13 individuals, um, only two persons, including the person that brought the bill, could say that, yes, we can um, or we should um, express some displeasure if the people's business um, wasn't conducted in a particular way? So only two individuals um, was of the thinking Wow, that's very tell- that's very telling in itself. Um, so only two individuals um, saw that in the people's house, business should be run a certain way. If a member of government that's elected by the people do not fulfill their duty, um, spend some money that's you know might be unclear or wrongfully um, spent. There are big auditor reports. There are big um, things. There are investigations and so on that the governor office um, would run. Um, so why is it that we can't have the same level of authority in terms of running the affairs of the Virgin Islands? So this is often a fake construct, in my opinion, um, that we are really in charge. And then things like this, to me, happens, and then you're reminded, perhaps you're really not in charge. You're, quote-unquote, allowed to run parts of your affairs. Um, but when push comes to shove, are you really running um, your affairs? Are you really building a territory, building a nation according to how you and the people that live and are native to this um, place feel that that um, territory should be built or should run? Or are you just a modern day colony? Um, that we really need to um, start having more. And then we can definitely, once we start having those conversations and really start looking at things that we hold on to as truths, I think we will quickly and easily identify um, with the plight of African Americans because they're dealing with the overt um, racism and also the systematic racism. We're dealing a lot more with the systematic racism because we are predominantly um, uh, Afro-Caribbean space. Have you ever heard of the no. um, the ASA study? Okay, so ASA study is um, it's a study done to I think it was done by by Kaiser, I believe, and it identifies certain markers mm. that will lead to dysfunction, um, you know, trauma. And um, different, it really speaks to potential life outcomes. And it talks about what your resilience score is. So you can go on and you can do an ACES test. And it all looks as what happened. It it looks at what happened in your formative Mm -hmm. years. So prior to your 18th birthday, did you have a parent who would swear at you? Or were you physically abused? Were your parents divorced? You know, it looks at a lot of things that go on to become markers and shape who you are. And there's a stunning link between childhood trauma 
and chronic diseases, as well as social and emotional problems. And uh, I recently did a, a, a training on, um, on trauma. And what was very clear is that there are some communities where the ACEs score is so high that you definitely could predict a person's outcome mm-hmm. based on what they've been, been through. And I see a lot of people in the Caribbean and even people in the Afro, in the U.S. of African descent, based on their ACEs score, you really have an idea as to what our communities and the future is going to look like if intervention does not happen. And furthermore, in that training, we spoke about trauma and how trauma is passed down. You know, over time, mm-hmm. trauma goes on to alter your DNA. And you are passing down so many things to future generations that I feel like we are at a point where this isn't having these discussions isn't just for the here and the now, but we need to have them in mind of the future with the understanding that we've already disadvantaged and we are passing on future and further disadvantage. And we need to get allies and people who can stand with us to shift the tide because the future doesn't look so good when we look at what's happening in the present and what has happened in the past. And that is from a trauma standpoint, when you understand how trauma works and how it goes on to, to, to shape and alter people's lives. But that in itself is fascinating work. It's still being unfolded. <laughs> that might be a conversation for, but I think that that trauma for another is topic. one of the reasons, um, why, you know, Black Lives Matter activists, NAACP and other persons are having the conversation now about what is defunding the police, um, what that can look like and what that can mean and how using the same millions of dollars that you use to um, source um, to get, you know, weapons and what's not for the police, a police um, force, using those funds into other things that can help families um, in predominantly black neighborhoods um, really deal with some of those things, help mothers um, mother their um, children better, look at jobs, look at different ways in which you can support people actually being whole human beings to reduce some of that trauma and so that some of that trauma does not pass on to the next um, generation. So I, I'm kind of really excited about the conversations that people are having right now because it is really forcing us to reimagine the world. Um, without the systemic racism that we experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, as it relates to racism in the Caribbean too, I don't want to sound like it doesn't happen. It does exist. I think some islands like Trinidad have a problem. And I think it mm-hmm. mainly stems from their racial composition. And a lot of it is also fueled by politics and economics. I believe that in the region as a whole, it's, it is more of a class system, but we do suffer from certain inherent foundational things that, that we have been having an issue shaking simply because of the way these islands were set up after the original people were killed out. So it's similar to you in the Virgin Islands, you are considered an overseas territory. 
but we are we are the queen is still the head of state in Grenada. There's a lot that comes with that because you are independent, but to some extent, you know, so you you will always deal with some sort of a racial or cultural overtone that may not necessarily be the way it looks in other places simply because of the structure of these islands. But on the other side, I think too that, you know, and this thought is coming from, um, from a conversation I was having with a, a colleague of mine earlier. And I think this might be a controversial thought because we were, you know, we were speaking about this whole situation and he said something that really struck a nerve. He said, well, I don't like how they kill the guy, but I mean, black people can be racist too. And let's not make this all black about a black racist. and white situation because he's been, uh, well, <laughs> so, 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 so he no. was like, you know, um, so let's just... He was like, you know, so let's not go down that road because, you know, he lives in, in, in Austria and he lives in a community where there's, there's black people. And he was like, black people can be racist too. And I had to say to him, listen, and listen, well. listen, 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 <laughs> and listen well. I, as a black person, cannot be racist. I might be prejudicial, I might be biased, but I do not believe that black people can be racist because if you understand how racism works, you, you would understand racism has a lot to do with power and systems. And as a black woman or as a black people, we have never really held the resources or the power to use race as a tool to fuel any system of oppression. So I don't believe that um I don't believe that we can be racist, but we shouldn't have to, you know, feel like we need to erase ourselves because every time somebody brings up the whole conversation mm -hmm. of race, we feel like it's deflected back. My blackness goes before me. I am black before I am a woman. So I need to speak to these things. Nobody says there's a woman black. They say there's a black woman. They see my race before they see me. It's time we spoke to about the trauma. I mean, like we, it's just too heavy. Um, and we have, whether we're in the United States or anywhere in the diaspora, we have been carrying it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so it is very heavy. Um, and I think particularly now, thank God for technology, social media, and um, uh, video. Um, I think it is important for us to showcase the world as we experience it. Uh, because when we don't showcase the world as we experience Indeed, it, yeah. we hide the reality of our existence. And we also, I think, um, allow individuals to continue to treat us in a particular manner. Look at the scurry that's happening in corporate America right now to show that, you know, I am not racist. I'm anti-racist. Um, and so on. There's a big scurry that's happening. People are literally losing um, a lot of money uh, over it. But you would not have lost that money if people weren't speaking out, if someone wasn't video um, taping or recording um, those instances of police brutality. That person would have gone on living their 
everyday happy-go-lucky lives, not even thinking about my experience, not even thinking about your experience, not even thinking about the experience of regular, just Black people in general that they um, interact with. So I do think it's important for us to continue to talk about it. And people are going to be uncomfortable. But I saw a tweet that I absolutely love. We have been uncomfortable for over 400 and something years. It's perfectly fine for you to be uncomfortable right now. And Mm -hmm. if the spirit of Black people have not taught us anything, is you will endure. It is okay for you to be uncomfortable um, right now. What you do with that uncomfortableness is going to um, help shape um, the world that we have now. And I think that I'm going to put my money on the world is not going back to what um, it was um, pre the death of George Floyd. So, you know, people have to decide what they're going to do and act accordingly. You know, I think it's a pivotal moment in American history and race relations. And there seems to be a reckoning that's happening. And things are coming to roost. When white America gets involved, I think things will change. And it's been interesting seeing how many white and young people have been in solidarity with the black community. You know, when we think about racial inequality and all that comes with it, it can seem overwhelming and like it's too big for us to address or we are too small to effect change. But here's the thing. Change comes when everyday people rise up speak truth to power, and simply show up. Seriously. I mean, history is full of examples of one person changing the tide and the current of the system. And if you don't believe me, George Floyd did. You know, as we close, I invite you to check out Marcus Martin and Minneapolis. I'll put a link to that on the website. This is an article by esteemed Caribbean scholar Hilary Beckles. And that was a great share. Thanks for sending that over for me, Saskia. It explores how we in the Caribbean are affected by racial struggles in the U.S. and how we have historically influenced the dialogue and the fight for equality. So for Black people and for those who stand with them and, you know, want to understand racism, check out the FemPower website under the podcast link and look for this show and I will post some resources there. I want to thank my guest today, Saskia, for her contribution to this conversation. Thank you for inviting me to have this conversation. Um, I'm, as I said before, I am learning uh, a lot. I am trying to unlearn as well a lot of things that um, has been passed on. And I just really want to encourage, um, particularly um, us in the region, um, to, you know, do our own learning. Like I said, I didn't learn a lot um, in, you know, my school system. Um, but it's, you know, it's our responsibility. We have the internet now. Um, you know, there's no excuse for not knowing, um, particular things. Um, but if anything else, I just ask that you just sympathize, um, with individuals, um, black or white. Let's look at each other as individuals and see how we can be, um, our best selves. I'm mainly on Instagram. You can connect with me. I'm at Saskia Barnes and please sign up for my newsletter behind the scenes where I, share my opinion on a number of things, politics in the region, politics in general, um, why I love Black people so much, as well as trying to be a homesteader and um, a busy new mom. And thank you again, Carolina, for having me. And I look forward to us, you know, just carrying on this conversation. Special thanks to today's guest, you the listener, and of course, Canberley Rum, artisanal small batch maker of fine Grenadian rums 
and the Fan Powered Podcast sponsor for this season. If you'd like to access any of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit fempowered.org forward slash podcast.